Hey there, it's Jeremy Myers, and you're listening to the Redeeming God Podcast. So welcome to the Redeeming God Podcast. Today we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. We've been slowly working our way through Ephesians, and we're in Ephesians chapter 2. And the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 explain the greatest problem humanity faces on earth. It's a pretty dire description that we have here. We've looked at the first two verses so far, and now we are considering the last verse of this description of the problem, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. This verse reveals the root cause of the problem and how it leads to the destruction of humanity. That's uh, what we're looking at today in our podcast. Before we do that, though, we will be looking at a question from a reader about critical race theory. If you've been hearing about CRT, critical race theory, um, maybe you have questions about it, concerns about it, maybe you love it. So we'll be talking briefly about that here. So uh, join us. That's where we're headed today. You have a mail message. All right. So the question I received from a listener about critical race theory is this. I listened to your recent discussions of critical race theory. Yeah. So a few um, episodes ago, I was discussing a book by Vadi Balcom about critical race theory and uh, sort of working my way through the book. And uh, that's what the reader is, uh, the listener is referring to here. Anyway, the question continues. And while I agree there might be some concerns with CRT, since the goal is to get rid of racism so that all people can live in love and unity with each other, shouldn't we accept and embrace CRT or at least allow it to have a voice in our schools and churches? CRT is part of an overall conversation about race relations, and it is therefore a good thing, right? All right, so that's the question. And um, look, I 100% agree everybody wants to get rid of racism. Everybody wants love and unity among all people, okay? Almost everybody. Uh, and so I completely agree as well that uh, love and racial reconciliation are taught in the Bible, are godly goals, and should be the goals of every person who seeks to follow Jesus, okay? The problem is that while CRT, critical race theory, does claim to be working towards unity and forgiveness and love and reconciliation, the results so far seem to be that it does exactly the opposite. All right? And uh, the reason it fails seems to be twofold. First, in their attempts to achieve racial reconciliation, CRT, one of their main tactics so far seems to be uh, demonizing one particular race, namely white people. All right? Uh, and that makes love and unity and reconciliation impossible. Uh, love and unity and reconciliation and forgiveness can never occur, never, when one group seeks to accuse and condemn some other group, okay, for all the problems that are occurring. I'm not saying white people are faultless, all right? Uh, but you're not going to achieve reconciliation and unity simply by blaming all white people, all right? It, it, all that does is amplify the division and the strife. Reconciliation only occurs, according to Scripture, when all parties agree that we are all equal in God's image. 
And, uh, and therefore, based on our equality as being made in the image of God, we're willing to view each other and treat each other as equals. Okay, that's sort of the foundation. We, we can't, we can't uh, begin from any other foundation. So if CRT is saying that white people, because of their whiteness, are inherently inferior in their thinking and their, their, their behaviors and other things— and you just have to read some of the CRT literature and materials to see that is exactly what they're teaching. Well, then all of a sudden they are saying white people are not equal to everybody else. And uh, it becomes a very big problem to achieve any sort of unity and love. Okay. Secondly, CRT does not lead to love and ra- racial reconciliation because it seeks to achieve love and unity between races through law. All right, uh, and law never never accomplishes anything. And specifically, maybe even more specifically, they, they seek to, especially those in religious circles who are embracing critical race theory. You know, pastors and churches and certain seminaries and Bible colleges. Uh, these groups see do see in Scripture that we're called and invited to seek love and unity among the races, among various races of humanity. But they do this through what's called hedging around the law. Do you know what hedging around the law is or building a fence around the law? Um, Let me explain what it is, and I will show you in the process that uh, hedging around the law, building a fence around the law, always does, always accomplishes the exact opposite of what God intended. And CRT does that too. So, So what is hedging, law hedging, fencing around the law? Well, it occurs when people take a particular command of God or instruction from God, and in, a, in an attempt to obey what God says, they create a secondary system of man-made traditions, of man-made laws, which are intended to help people obey the primary law. Does that make sense? So you can sort of think of it, it's a nice hedge, okay? You have, you have uh, say... Uh, something in a garden or something you want to protect, great, uh, beautiful flower, whatever. So to protect that, you build a hedge or a fence around it to keep people even away from it. All right. And uh, I, I talk about this a lot in my sermon. I have a sermon online on Luke 6, 1 through 5 about the Sabbath. You can read that. There's a link in uh, the manuscript section for this podcast if you just want to click on the link or you can search it for Google. It's about Luke 6, 1 through 5 and keeping the Sabbath law. Anyway, you know, one of the Ten Commandments is uh, do not work on the Sabbath, right? And so that's fine. And, it, you know, we can do that um, according to what the Scripture says. And I have to listen to my podcast on Genesis 2, 1 through 3 to discover how to do that. But what happened in the days of Jesus and prior to that, and this is the controversy that occurred in Luke chapter 6, is the Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, took this command of God about not working on the Sabbath, and they hedged it. They, they built a fence around it. They, built, they, they hedged around the law. And so in an attempt to not work on the Sabbath, they're like, well, what does that mean? What is work? And uh, then they said, well, work is anything, you know, and, and the, the process goes, this is how we theologians and Bible scholars do this. Uh, and eventually, in the days of Jesus, you were not allowed to walk a certain distance on the Sabbath. You couldn't even spit on the Sabbath, okay, because that might move some dirt and would therefore be equivalent to digging a hole. Uh, you couldn't light a fire on the Sabbath. You could not write a letter, uh, even a single letter of the alphabet on the Sabbath. And in specifically in Luke 6, 1-5, you couldn't even rub grains of 
of wheat between your hands because that would be considered threshing, and therefore that would be work. Even if you're starving and hungry, too bad you can't do it. Okay, So you see what happens is they created all of these man-made rules uh, in an attempt to obey the one instruction about not working on the Sabbath. We do similar things today, right? Scripture says, um, don't, don't lust after women. Okay, uh, fine. But uh, that becomes, in some cultures, in some societies, and even in some of our churches, in some Christian circles, what does that become? All right, men, don't lust. All right, well, then, women, you cover yourselves up. I always find it interesting that women get punished for the sins of men. Uh, Jesus says that if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, right? So who, who should bear the brunt of the punishment for lust? Well, the men should. Gouge out your eyes, men. <laughs> Uh, Jesus was speaking in hyperbole there, an exaggeration, but the the point still stands. Don't punish the women for the the sins of the men. Um, But that's what we do, right? Uh, Men have a problem with lust, so women, you wear sacks. (laughs) Don't look pretty. Well, God made women to be pretty, and we shouldn't be punishing men for their lust, and we shouldn't be punishing women for the lust of men. Okay, it's it's, It's hedging around the law against lusting. Or drinking, okay? Bible says don't get drunk. Well, great. Uh, so lots of uh, Christians and pastors and schools and so on say, well, in order to protect people from getting drunk, we're just going to make a man-made tradition, a law here, don't even drink. So you can't have any wine, you can't have a beer, you can't even have, say, cooking wine in your your pantry when you want to cook with because it's alcohol, okay? <laughs> Who cares that the alcohol gets cooked away? In the... Anyway, you see what's happening here? We take a law and we add all of these other laws as hedges, as fences around the one law, and now these new laws become what? They become the standards of morality. These new laws become the standards by which we judge and condemn other people, and even by whether we decide who is really a Christian, who is really following God. And we know that this happens in some circles. Oh, you had a beer? Are you really a Christian? Well, the Bible says nothing about whether or not we should drink. Jesus had wine and so on, okay? Um, It says don't get drunk. And even if someone does get drunk, that doesn't mean they're not a Christian, okay? So you see what happens here? This is, this is how hedging around the law works. Our attention moves from the one instruction that God gave, which is an important instruction, and it moves to these other man-made traditions, man-made laws, and those become the standard by which we judge and condemn other people. So that's how hedging of the law works, and that is how hedging around the law leads to hate. It accomplishes the opposite of what God wanted. Because now we're using these man-made traditions to determine who is really obeying God, who is really following God's instructions. And, and really, those people are not doing anything one way or the other about God's instructions. It's about human instructions and human control and human power. Anyway, that is what's going on with critical race theory in our culture today. Critical race theory, the founders, and I don't know if they're what their religious background is, but let's just talk about the Christians who accept and endorse critical race theory. They see the valid instruction in Scripture about racial unity and love and reconciliation. Wonderful, let's do that. But critical race theory, what it does is it hedges around those laws. It has created a system of laws and rules which they intend to force upon people so that we all will do the work of anti-racism. 
Okay, And you just look at some of the instructions and commands and things that they want to get rid of and things that they want to condemn and, and, and accuse other people of, and you see that that is what they're doing. They're hedging around the law. There's a great article from Krista Bont- Bontrager uh, called The New Legalism. I'll link to it here in the manuscript as well. And it explains how all this works. She explains how all this works with critical race theory. In the article, she first discusses how the Pharisees in the days of Jesus hedged around the law, okay, sort of as I just described to you, so that they actually ended up doing the opposite of what the law required, what the law was intended to do. That is what Jesus is talking about there in Luke chapter 6. Anyway, Krista goes on to say that CRT advocates are doing the same thing today. They hedge around the biblical law's against racism, but this doesn't end racism. Exactly, It does exactly the opposite. It creates racism. Right? So here's a, here's a bit of what Krista writes. She says, I have become persuaded that social justice and critical race theory are the holiness codes of our cultural moment. Doing the work of anti-racism has come to comprise the accepted values, language, and moral code not just in our culture, but in many of our churches too. Social justice warriors act as the new Pharisees. They are standing by, watching, willing, and ready to point out others' moral shortcomings according to their human traditions, their hedge laws. Their clear message is this, obey our laws or risk being canceled. Within the church or even in Christian higher education, the sincerity of your faith may even be questioned. This popular graphic, there's a popular graphic she lists here from, which we often see all over the place, and I'll, I'll, I can't read it to you in the podcast, but I'll, again, I'll include it here in the um, manuscript section for this podcast at redeeminggod.com, Ephesians 2.3. Um but it shows all of these new rules and human traditions that have been built up to get rid of white supremacy, right? So um, they've, they've made all these human laws about what is allowed and what isn't allowed and how to identify white supremacy and so on. This is the new holiness code, the new hedge laws that are put forward to prevent us uh, from you know, acting in racist ways. And, and it, it does exactly the opposite. It creates more racist tension and racist feelings. Okay? So she goes on. The question is, does this complex list demonstrate how I must live out God's law of loving my neighbor? I would say no. Showing partiality, using slurs, or hating my neighbor in my heart because of her ethnicity would violate God's standards of justice. This graphic implies little more than a bunch of hedge laws that are intended to tell me how I must obey God's commands. There's nothing about white privilege or white fragility in the Bible. There are no commands in Scripture about decentering whiteness or performing the works of anti-racism. But many Christian leaders are talking as if there are. Okay, great article. I encourage you to go read it. Look, Get back to the original question here. We all should be opposed to racism. And I think all Christians are opposed to racism, except for maybe a few on the very fringe who have misread Scripture in horrible ways and are reading Scripture in an evil way. 
Okay, racism is evil and it must be purged from the world. Everybody agrees on that. Racism does the exact opposite of what God wants or desires. Racism has absolutely no place in the kingdom of God. Racism belongs to the kingdom of darkness. It belongs to the rule of Satan. Okay, scripture is clear. We must work to bring love, healing, forgiveness, and reconciliation to all the people of the world. Okay, but CRT, critical race theory, does not accomplish that. It consists of hedging laws of the Pharisees. Uh, the, so the, reg, the regulations of CRT accomplishes the opposite of what it claims. It doesn't bring love or reconciliation. Okay, the fruit of CRT is more hatred and jealousy and discord and tension um, among the various people groups. So I, I would say don't be led astray by critical race theory. It does not help in creating unity. Instead, we should follow Jesus into love, grace, mercy, compassion, and forgiveness. These are the traits of the kingdom of God, and these are the only way to restore unity and reconciliation to the world. That's critical race theory. Hope that helped answer the question. And incidentally, this fits, all of this fits, sort of why I chose to answer this question. This all fits in exactly with what we learned today in our study of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. So let's turn there. All right, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Just a quick summary. Ephesians chapter 2 is... Widely misread in the church today, um, uh, but Ephesians chapter two. Here's what a briefly summary of what the chapter is about. Uh, it's all about the primary problem that humans face in this world, and it's exactly what we've just been talking about: the problem of hatred, division, strife, and racism. That is what Ephesians two is all about. Humans have always suffered from religious hatred, economic hatred, racial hatred, cultural hatred. We hate people who are different. Because we hate them, we feel like they, since they are our enemies, they must be God's enemies. And if they're God's enemies, well, then they just deserve, de deserve death. And so we, we bring out our preachers and our sermons, and we march off to war against our enemies in God's name, saying we're doing God's will. Okay? So we use our hatred of other people. Whatever, wherever that hatred comes from, they're richer than us, they have different skin color than us, they're different religion than us, their culture is weird. We don't like their food. <laughs> okay. They have more land than we want their land, whatever it is. We use our hatred of them to condemn uh, our enemies and kill them. And we do it all in God's name. Okay. So in Ephesians 2, Paul wants to, to show us how to end this problem. And he begins in the first three verses by describing this problem. And that's what we're looking at now. We've already looked at uh, verse 1, uh, Ephesians 2, verse 1 where we learned what uh, the great problem of, huma of humanity is uh, and how it leads to death. Paul calls it sin, and it leads to death, okay? Uh, and then in Ephesians 2.2, 2, we learned that all of this is, is coming from the accuser, Satan. He is sort of behind the great human problem. I said he, but it's really more of an it. It's the uh, accusatory spirit uh, that uh, rules and dominates. It's all around us, in the air we breathe, even. Um, it's, it's the dominating sort of force of human society and culture. It's the foundation, the building block of human culture and society. Okay. Uh, this accusatory spirit. Now in Ephesians 2, 3, the verse we're looking at today, 
Uh, Paul shows how we humans have fallen prey to the lies of the accuser and how this leads to the destruction of humanity. Let me read the verse. Ephesians 2.3 says this, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, objects of wrath. All right, so let's just look at sort of this, the key for phrases and ideas in this verse to help us understand what Paul is saying. He begins by saying, all of us also lived among them at one time. Okay, there are no exceptions here, Paul is saying. All means all. Uh, you, me, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, uh, everyone, the Pope, everyone, okay, uh, lived in this way. Paul even includes himself. He says, all of us, he's including himself. All of us lived the way the world lives caught up in, in what Paul is describing here, this sin that leads to death. Uh, all of us lived under the control of the spirit of accusation, Satan. All of us lived in the kingdom of the air that, that permeates everything we think, say, and do. It's all around us like the air we breathe. We don't even see it or recognize it. All of us lived that way. Now, Paul's going to say later, many of us still do. We haven't broken free of that. That's what Paul is writing about here in Ephesians chapter 2. Okay. Uh, so we, we all of us lived that way, and, all, and many of us still do. In fact, all of us still do in various ways, okay? Uh, but Paul says next in Ephesians 2, 3, that all of us, what were we doing? What is this way that we were all living in? We were gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. We're following its desires and thoughts. Okay, so I just want to sort of, there's lots we could say about all these words here, but let me just point out three in specific. First, this reference to sinful nature, they're in the middle here. I do not like uh, this translation. The, uh, the Greek word Paul uses here is sarx, and it means flesh. The best translation is flesh. Uh, sinful nature is a myth, okay? Uh, there is no such thing as the sinful nature, and I know that might be a shock to you. But we've all grown up hearing and thinking, pastors talking about, reading about in books, about the sinful nature. Guess what? The Bible knows nothing of a sinful nature. The Bible talks about the flesh, and we should too. Okay, so what is the flesh? Uh, I, I do talk about the flesh extensively. I have a whole lesson on it in my Gospel Dictionary online course, which you can take when you join my discipleship group. Um, but the biblical term for flesh basically refers to, okay, here, here's the definition I provide and defend in that lesson on flesh in the Gospel Dictionary. Flesh refers to the human tendency to use religion to justify our violence against other human beings. Okay, that is flesh. Um, there's a lot more to it than that. But basically, it is religious zeal which carries itself through violence, which is performed through violence. Okay, violent religious zeal. Sacred violence, maybe if we wanted to put it in a two-word definition. Sacred violence. That is flesh. And so when Paul is, is writing about the flesh, that's what he has in mind here. He's thinking about the tendency that religious zealots have to think that in order to be faithful to God's commands, and in fact, uh, it's really faithfulness to the man-made traditions which hedge around God's commands, as we just talked about above earlier uh, regarding critical race theory, uh, these religious zealots think that in order to be faithful to these God, these, these, these commands, okay, uh, that um, 
you know, they are faithful. They're doing everything. In fact, they're doing all these extra things that makes, that makes them in better standing, uh, with God than other people. And therefore everybody else needs to conform or die basically. Okay. Uh, you need to do what I do, or we're going to cancel you. You need to agree with me, or we're going to at least get you fired from your job, removed from your position, make, make you go bankrupt, and may, who knows, maybe we'll evil, even imprison you or kill you. Okay? That is the flesh at work. And, and, and that, that, um, that's the, the issue that Paul is talking about here. Now, again, we just have one reference here. I, I do go into a lot of the other references that use the word flesh elsewhere in Scripture in the Gospel Diction Online course. So if you're a little skeptical of my understanding here, what I've just presented about flesh, you'll have to take that lesson or wait for the book when it comes out on the Gospel Dictionary. I, I will eventually publish that. Of course, it's getting close to a million words, so I'm not sure how long that book will be. Probably multiple volumes. Anyway, that's flesh. Let's go on to this uh, second key term that Paul is uh, using here in Ephesians 2, 3. It's, this is word desire. Um, I'm sorry, cravings. Let's talk about cravings first, and then we'll go to desire. The word cravings, there, uh, it, it's maybe in your Bible translation it says lusts. In fact, I prefer lusts. Uh, the word lust or lusts, it's a weighty theological word. Usually when we think of lust, we only think of sexual lust, but that is not uh, the only way that Scripture thinks of lust. Lust um, is a sort of a theological word that reminds us of the—it's basically the three forms that sin takes. There's really only th- uh, three three types of sin. Um, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Okay? These are the three sins that Jesus was tempted with in the wilderness in Luke 4. They're also the three sins that Eve faced when she was tempted by the serpent in the Garden of Eden, when um, the serpent came and, and invited her to take and eat from the fruit, okay? She saw that it was pleasing to the eye, okay, lust of the eyes, and so on. Okay, so um, these, these cravings, these lusts, are, are closely related to desire, uh, which which Paul mentions also in this text. So let's talk about that, and then we'll tie this all together here. This word desire is also a key term in Scripture. And it summarizes sort of the basic fleshly or human source of sin. Okay, uh, this, this, this concept of desire pops up very early in Scripture, all the way back into Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, where, where Adam and Eve eat from the forbidden fruit, and then remember the consequences of this uh, come about in Genesis chapter 4 when sin is crouching at Cain's door and its desire is for you, God warns Cain. Uh, of course, Cain gives into that desire, and what does it lead him to do? To kill his brother Abel. All right, so there's this concept of desire which leads to human violence against our brothers. All right, so so this understanding of, of, of desire and lust and cravings and how it leads to violence against one another, it's a very key concept in Scripture. It, it's sort of a, a summary of sin, how to understand sin in Scripture. Also, it, it forms the foundation to pretty much every aspect of life, not just how to understand Scripture, but also how to understand economics and culture, okay, and the, and the foundation of society. I did a teaching on this a couple of years back. There's a YouTube video on it. I'm not going to try to summarize all that now here. I call it a theory of everything. 
<laughs> so I'll put the link to the video here in the manuscript section of uh, this podcast, and you can go watch it if you'd like, or just search for it on YouTube, A Theory of Everything by Jeremy Meyer, something like that probably might come up. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, when we understand these three terms then, flesh, lusts, and desire, we, we, we see that basically what Paul is saying here in verse 3 uh, is all people on earth live according to these things, these, th- this religious zeal, the flesh, that leads us to engage in violence against our enemies. Okay? Uh, we engage in this violence because of our lusts. We see things they want, or we see things they have, and we want them. Um, we, 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 we use our desire because uh, it, it, it causes us to engage in violence against them, to destroy people who are different from us. Okay? And Paul is saying, this is the way we all used to live. This is the, the air that is surrounding us. It is the, the culture, society that we live in. And we don't know any other way to live. Sacred violence runs the world. But we all use sacred violence to get what we want and to justify our violence in the process. When people engage in violence, they usually think, I'm doing what is necessary. I'm doing, religious people say, I'm doing what God wants. And that's what Paul is describing here. The end result then is what Paul says here at the end of verse 3. He calls it wrath. He says, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Okay, so what is wrath? Here again, when most Christians think of wrath, they think of what? They think of the wrath of God, right? In fact, I, I almost guarantee that you, listening to this, when you heard by objects, nature of wrath, you thought, oh, the wrath of God. This is God's anger directed towards sinful human beings. God hates sin, and therefore he is angry at us because we sin. That's how most people think when they hear the term wrath. That's how most Bible teachers and pastors and seminary professors teach about this as well. But guess what? Scripture knows nothing about the wrath of God. Okay, okay, I know there's a few places in Paul, a few places in the New Testament that use the phrase wrath of God. Let me talk about that in a second. But uh, first of all, you need to recognize that the vast majority of the times the Bible uses the word wrath, it doesn't use this modifier of God. It's just wrath, just by itself, like we have here in verse 3. Notice it doesn't say wrath of God here in verse 3. We were by nature objects of wrath, period. Okay, so if we're reading into this of God, we're reading something that Paul didn't write, at least not here, okay? And, And that is the vast majority of uses of the word wrath in Scripture. Now, there are a few places, as I said, where the modifier is added, wrath of God, okay? But I'm convinced that those those couple places that use that Uh, They are not referring to the way God really is, but are instead referring to the way some religious people think God is. I know that's a challenging idea. Let me describe it this way. Okay, Uh, you're listening to some street preacher, let's say. I have encountered street preachers like this, and (laughs) their, their primary message seems to be, God hates certain people, okay? Um, and, and so you'll hear the preacher say, you know, God hates Muslims or God hates homosexuals. If they're really hateful, they might even use a different word for homosexual. Uh, they might have these sandwich board uh, signs that show all the types of people God hates. 
All right, now when you encounter or hear a pastor say such hateful things, are you going to assume, well, this is a pastor, he's saying it, therefore that must be the way God really is? Sadly, some people think that, but I hope you don't. I hope you know enough about God as revealed to us in Jesus Christ to, reveal, to understand that this pastor is wrong. pastor who says that thing uh, has some really bad ideas about God. They are not accurately representing God the way he really is. And our task then is to present God in a different way, in an accurate way, in a way that Jesus revealed to us. And maybe even, if we want to waste our time probably, try to refute that pastor uh, and the false ideas he is presenting about God. That is what is occurring in the few places where the Bible, where the New Testament speaks of the wrath of God. Okay? Uh, Those texts, for example, in Paul, when he talks about the wrath of God, Paul is not writing about the wrath of God in a way that says, I agree with this. In those texts, I'm convinced Paul is quoting bad teachers who have bad ideas about God so that Paul can then turn around and refute them the way you and I are supposed to do. Okay, uh, it, it gets confusing because in Paul's day, they didn't have quote marks in the, in the Greek, where, which Paul was writing in. There was no such thing as a quotation mark. So we read these old Greek manuscripts and we say, well, I, I see this here. Paul is writing about the wrath of God. These must be his words. This must be his thoughts. Uh, but in reality, uh, Paul is quoting somebody and then refuting it. Now, there are ways of telling. If you don't have quote marks, what can you do to help show that you are quoting somebody and then refuting them? Well, there are grammatical clues and keys to uh, point that out. Uh, you might say, but someone will say, right? And then say what they say. And and then to show that you're refuting them, you might say, oh, foolish man, <laughs> right? May it never be, meganoito, something like that to show, okay, that I, I quoted somebody, but someone will say, uh, and now I'm going to refute them. Okay? Oh, foolish man. Okay, that's just an example. It's called epistolary diatribe. It's a, a very common form of writing uh, in the first century, uh, Empire, Roman, you know, Middle Eastern, Israel area that they used to help indicate when they are quoting somebody and refuting somebody. I've written a whole article on epistolary diatribe. Uh, again, I will link to that also in the uh, manuscript section for this podcast. You can go read or just search Google for epistolary diatribe in the letters of Paul. I know it's a complicated term, but it makes sense, and the article's pretty self-explanatory when you read it. It's very important, though, because what that does is it helps us see that in these places where Paul talks about the wrath of God, he's not, Paul is not quoting somebody with approval. He's quoting somebody to disprove them. Paul does not believe God is wrathful. Paul knows that God is not wrathful. Yes, wrath exists but it does not come from God. Okay, I I know, again, we've got a lot of tricky concepts in today's study. I will have, again, a a full lesson on the word wrath eventually. I'll put that in my Gospel Dictionary Online course when I get to it. It's not up there yet, but that will explain more, okay? So uh, that's sort of a a, a side, side note about wrath of God and so on in Scripture, but I still haven't explained what wrath is. Uh, What is wrath Uh, if it is not 
God's anger directed towards humans. Okay, that's what lots of people think. Wrath, oh, it's God angry at sinful human beings, so he punishes them. If that's not, if that is an incorrect understanding of wrath, then what is wrath? Here's what wrath is. Wrath is the devastating and destructive consequences of sin that falls upon humans because we sin. In this wrath, these, these, these devastating consequences of sin, they don't come from God. They come from sin itself. I like to say, and I've heard others say, sin bears its own punishment with it. Okay? Uh, God doesn't punish us for sin. He doesn't need to, because sin bears its own punishment with it. Sin hurts us. That's why God tells us not to sin, because he doesn't want to see us get hurt. Right? And that's what Paul is calling wrath. It's the devastating and destructive consequences of sin. Uh, so when we sin, look, there are natural consequences that result. And these consequences, they destroy, they hurt, they harm, they kill, they ruin, they damage. And not just humans, but this happens to uh, animals and uh, the climate and relationships, and government, and culture, and society, and economics, and basically every other aspect of this world. You can think of wrath like a fire, and it destroys everything it touches. And how is a fire started with just a little spark? It doesn't take much sometimes. If there's a dry forest, a little spark can set that whole forest on fire, uh, and it leads to human, uh, just a contagion of human violence. Think about, say, the assassination of, of uh, Archduke Ferdinand, okay, led to World War I. If you know your world history a little bit, there were other things that led to the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, but, but uh, that assassination then led to World War I. Now, you may know this, but uh, World War I led to World War II. Uh, World War I, the, the, the winners in the West uh, greatly mistreated the German people. And one of them was Adolf Hitler. He didn't like how the Germans were being mistreated. And so he rose up sort of in rebellion against the mistreatment. And of course, that led to World War II. So one act of human violence, this assassination, led to the death and misery of millions great, great destruction that covered the face of the earth. That is wrath. When you think of wrath, you can think of World War I and World War II. That's what it looks like. It is a contagion of violence that starts with a single spark of violence and spreads to destroy countless lives. Now, with all of this in mind, are you beginning to see why what Paul describes here in verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 2 is the greatest problem that humans face? I mean, wouldn't it be nice if we could end all the violence in the world? <laughs> wouldn't it be great if we could fulfill the desire of every beauty pageant model <laughs> and achieve world peace? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could bring an end to wrath? Yes, 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 it would be wonderful. Well, that is exactly what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That is exactly what Paul goes on to describe in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. How Jesus reveals to us this problem and brought an end to it. 
It's a problem solution application. That's Ephesians chapter 2. We've just looked at the problem. Let me just summarize it real quickly for you. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, the problem. We humans, we don't function properly in our roles as God's image on earth. We're dead. Okay? Instead, we are subjects to the ways of this world, to the lies, the deceits, the accusations of Satan. And all of this leads to sin according to our desires. And it results in wrath, in mutually assured destruction of all of us. Maybe we could even summarize Ephesians 2, 1, 3 even more succinctly. Okay? Because we do not follow God in the ways of love, unity, and peace, but instead we follow Satan in the ways of desire, sin, and death, humanity is doomed. It's a pretty dire description, right? Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, has explained the greatest problem that humanity faces. It's the universal problem of desire that leads to accusation and blame, which in turn results in a contagion of death and violence. And most humans have absolutely no idea how to break free from all this violence, right? I mean, what do most humans, in the face of violence, what do most humans do? <laughs> Try to be more violent, right? Uh, the best way to defend against attackers is to have more guns and more bombs than they do. You, you bring a knife, I'll bring a gun. <laughs> All right. Uh, Paul has a better solution because that way just leads to what? The contagion of violence, never-ending cycle of violence. Paul has a better solution, and that solution is revealed in Jesus Christ. Jesus showed us how to solve the problem of human violence, and we as the church are supposed to show the world how to solve the problem of human violence, which in turn starts to bring an end to violence. Okay? That's sort of a foreshadowing of where we're headed next. We'll pick up next time in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul begins to describe for us what God has done for us, revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Make sure you join us then, because I know you want to understand the solution to human violence. We'll see you then. Okay, talk to you later.